Thank you for listening to the Deep Creek Pulpit, the preaching ministry of Pastor Joshua Hitchcock, pastor of Deep Creek Baptist Church in Harrodsburg, Kentucky, where we seek to be faithful to Scripture and relevant to everyday life. If you will, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John. This is what happens. We're going to finish the book today. The book of 1 John. We're going to begin in verse 13. I'm going to read it and then we will dive in. Let's begin reading. It says this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading, leading to death. I do not say that we should make request for this. All unrighteousness is sin, but there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. Now, as we dive in, I want to go ahead and just give you the, our, our first point here. And, and, and ultimately, the, the overarching theme of this passage and of this book is that, number one, we can have confident assurance that we know that we have eternal life. We can have confident assurance that we know that we have Eternal life. As we, as we come to the end of this book, I want you to see again that John is sharing the entire purpose of, of the book. The, 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 the reason he's written this whole letter here. That I've, I, I write to you, and he's writing to believers. I write to you, I've written these things to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God. So those who believe... It says, so that you may know that you have eternal life. As believers in Christ, we can know without a shadow of a doubt that we have everlasting life. This is the first thing that we see is that he's sharing this purpose here. As he says, I'm writing these things, he's referring to the entire book. Everything that has come before and he's he's writing to believers. This is his audience as he's writing this letter. Those who have repented from sin and placed their faith in Christ. And he writes so that they know that they have. And notice what it says here. That you have. You have currently. You presently have this. Eternal life is, is not something that we get when we, when we die. Eternal life is something that becomes ours the moment we repent and believe the gospel. If you have trusted in Christ by faith, you already have eternal life. Well, pastor, how, how do I know that I'm 
genuinely trusting in Jesus? How do I know that I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really saved? How can I have this assurance? Well, that's what the entire letter of 1 John has been about, showing the, the marks of a genuine believer. A genuine believer is someone who walks in holiness and obedience. A a genuine believer is someone who who loves other believers and loves God supremely. A genuine believer is someone who, who who, who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. All of this that has been covered in the book is 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 what we can look in our life and say, you know what, I know that I have eternal life. It is a book that is designed not not to not to cause doubt, to say, I don't know if I'm matching up to this. It's a book that is to give us confident assurance and hope that we presently have eternal life. Now, what this book isn't doing is, is, is this book is not telling us to do more and try harder. Well, I just need to be more obedient. I just need to be more holy. I need to I need to do better. And look, this is these things that this letter is addressing are things that happen in us the moment we believe. The moment we place our faith in Christ, these are fruits that the Spirit of God works in us. It is not a letter that is telling us to, well, you just need to, to do better at this to, to give yourself assurance. When we look at our lives at these marks and these marks are present with, within us, we begin to, to see that I've been saved by Christ. And these fruits that are in my life are evidence of that. And I do love the brothers that I am Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that I am walking in holiness. And when we live this way, and these fruits of the gospel are, are present within our life, then we can have confident assurance that we have at the present moment eternal life. The fact that it is eternal and that you have it right now, another implication here is that it cannot be lost. It is eternal. You have it right now, and it is eternal. It cannot be lost. So many scriptures give us this confidence. Romans 8 tells us that nothing can separate you from the love of God. John 10 tells us that nothing can snatch us out of the Father's hand. John 6 tells us that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. We can have confidence and assurance that we have eternal life right now. I cannot imagine a believer going through life wondering if he's done enough to be saved. Have I, have I obeyed enough? Have I loved enough? Have I, has my faith been strong enough? We're not saved by what we have done or by why, but why, but by what we do. We are saved on the merits of Christ alone, on his righteousness. When he said it is finished on the cross, it means that he accomplished all the work necessary to save and secure the salvation of those who would repent and believe in him. To read here that Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day and think that a genuine believer can lose their salvation is to make mockery of the promises of Christ. He says, I will raise them up on the last day. We can have assurance now that we have eternal life. Maybe you're asked, how do I know that I'm a Christian? First, have you repented of your sin and placed your faith and hope in Jesus alone? 
Second, is your life marked by the things that we've covered here in 1 John? Again, this is not a a letter that says do more and try harder. Do, Do your best at being more holy. This is evidence that we have been saved by Christ. This is fruit of our salvation that will naturally flow from our lives if we have been redeemed. Holiness, obedience, love. Is your life marked by these things? And if so, then you can have confident assurance that Christ has saved you and that you have been redeemed. But if these things don't mark your life, if these things aren't evident within you, then I would ask you to come to Christ today in repentance and faith and believe on him. Well, pastor, I walked an aisle when I was six years old. Brother, that doesn't save us. Maybe you did, but maybe the Lord didn't redeem you. Maybe you just were going through the motions because your friends were. If these things don't mark your life, then it's likely you're not converted. And I pray that you would place your hope and faith in Christ this morning. I remember I walked an aisle and prayed a prayer and got baptized in fifth grade, but I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved until two years later when the Lord revealed to me my sinfulness and my need for Christ. And the gospel finally made sense. So I, I know it's possible that there's people that have gone through those motions that are not converted because that's what I was. But you can have hope and assurance that you have eternal life when your life is marked by these things in this book. Because this is fruit of the gospel at work in our life. Come to Christ today if, you, if, if, if these things don't describe your life and, and be saved this morning. Experience His free gift of grace and mercy through His broken body and shed blood on the cross. The second thing that we see in this text is that we can have confidence. As believers, we can have confidence that God answers prayer. We can know that we have eternal life. And we can also have confidence that God will answer our prayers. Look at verse 14 with me. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request with which we have asked from him. Notice that it doesn't say just if we ask anything, he hears us. It says if we ask according to his will. Now, what does that mean? I mean, if I don't know God's will to choose A or B, how can I ask according to his will? What what John means here is that we ask in accordance with God's revealed will in his word. In the Bible, when our prayers are in alignment with God's word, God will hear and respond. And if he hears us and whatever we ask again, when we're asking in accordance with his word and, 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 and what that means, we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. Now, I'll tell you how this doesn't work. Now, if I were to pray right now, Lord, would you someday give me a Harley Davidson motorcycle? And I would love to have a bike. But I know that God, and I know that God knows that I want one. But I also know that God knows that my wife doesn't want me to have one. 
And I also know that my mom doesn't want me to have one. And everybody else in my life. So my asking for a motorcycle would not be in accordance with the word for many reasons. Certainly it would be fun, but it wouldn't advance the kingdom. It wouldn't be a wise use of my money at this time. And it wouldn't be loving towards my wife if I just went and got one. I know she's concerned for my safety, and simply going out and buying one would not be putting the needs of others first. So praying for a motorcycle would not necessarily be praying in accordance with God's will. But let's say you were reading the Bible, and you come across Acts 1-8, make disciples of all nations. Uh, make, make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28. You read Acts 1-8, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And you begin to pray based on that scripture. Lord, give me opportunities to share the gospel with an unbeliever. And you better pay attention because he's going to do that. That's praying in accordance with the will of God. That's praying in accordance with his word. You're reading the scriptures. And as the Lord is, 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 is teaching the scriptures through, through maybe your, your own Bible reading, maybe through a sermon or, 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 or something else as you're reading the word and, and growing in the word and you're praying in accordance with God's word, Lord, give me these opportunities. He's going to do that and you better pay attention so you can capitalize on those. He will answer those prayers because you're praying in accordance with his will. We can have confidence that he answers our prayers, when our prayers, the desires of our hearts are in alignment with his word. When we pray, the first thing we need to be looking at is, man, am I, am I praying for something God desires or am I praying for something that, that I desire? And there are good things that we pray for that seem to not happen. We pray for healing of a, a loved one. And what we mean is, Lord, get rid of the cancer. Take the cancer away. But sometimes they pass. We've been praying for their physical healing, but the Lord takes them home. Well, in a very real sense, the Lord did heal them. The Lord calls them home. They no longer have cancer. And sometimes we pray, the Lord answers it in a way that Maybe it's not the way we would hope he would have answered. I can give testimony after testimony in my own life of prayers that the Lord has answered in ways that and I didn't expect that to be how he would answer. We need to be praying in accordance with his will and be, be attuned to how he might answer that. And a lot of times we pray, we may not see the answer immediately. We may not even understand that he's answering our prayer. But there may be times when we look back 5, 10, 15 years down, down the road and you realize, you know what? This thing happened right here. You know, I prayed for that. I didn't pray for the circumstances around that. That may have been harder and more difficult, but and the Lord answered that prayer. So you're praying in accordance with his will, praying in alignment with his word. And we pray in alignment with his word. We can have confidence that he will hear us and he will Answer it says that we have the request with which he's at, we have asked of him. He will answer those prayers. Number three, we have a responsibility towards our brothers in Christ. As believers, we've been placed in, in a body. 
And it's not that we're just living our Christian life alone by ourselves. We don't just come to church and just get alone with, with me and Jesus and do our own thing. We have a responsibility to one another within the body of Christ. There are so many one another passages that I've made reference to over the last year and a half. That the, that the body of Christ is important and God has placed us in the body for a reason. And it says here. Verse 16, and it kind of goes along with this idea of praying. It gives us something else to pray for here. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, well, he should mind his own business. That's what it says, right? That's his own problem. You you do you, let them do them, but mind your own business. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say mind your own business, which... How we would probably wish he would say, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Very basically, we ought to be praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ when we err, when we sin. Now, that means we are are intricately involved in their life to know when they're sinning or not. You've got to be involved in their life to know where they're going astray and, and, and pray for them. Now, there's some trickiness here. Because it says that there's a sin not leading to death and there's a sin leading to death. Now, that could be a little confusing. What does this mean? You know, because, because John says here that we ought not to pray. We ought not to make intercession for this Sin that is leading to death. He said, there is a sin leading to death. I do not say he should make requests for this. Now, that's kind of bizarre. Don't, don't pray for this person in this sin. Well, what does he mean by that? Now, before we dive into that, we just... We'll get there. But if anyone sees his brother committing a sin... Notice here... We must first be paying attention to our fellow Christians. We see them. We see them. We are acutely aware of of their life. We see them at their best when God is working his grace in them. And we we see them at their worst when indwelling sin is still present. Second, we must recognize that we know that we sin. 1 John 2 tells us that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We know that we're going to sin. That is, that is a given. And we need to praise God that Jesus advocates for the genuine believer. But we have a responsibility toward one another that when we see that brother sinning, we're praying for them. What is this? What else are we all to do? Now I want us to, to look at some other scriptures here. Not only must we pray for them, but we must seek their repentance and restoration. Galatians 6.1 Tells us this, that if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You have a brother, and they're, they're sinning, they're caught in a trespass, and, and there's one who's, who's more mature in their faith, more spiritually minded, have a, have a calling by God here to restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, the word restore in Galatians 6.1 carries the idea of setting a bone, uh, of a broken bone that is being set. Now, there is pain in setting a broken bone back into place. I mean, just hearing that 
And, and having that image in my mind kind of gives me the heebie-jeebies. Oh, just the pain of, of, of all right, I've got to, almost like you've got to break it again to put it in place. But it's a pain that ultimately brings healing. No good doctor would say, well, I see, you know, your son's broken his leg. But if I reset this bone, it's going to hurt even more for a moment, so I'm just going to leave it alone. I don't want to inflict any more pain. So I'm just going to leave it alone and, and let, you know, just whatever happens, happens. No, a good doctor wouldn't do that. The bone needs to be restored. So a, so a doctor resets the bone knowing it will cause pain immediately, but it will ultimately bring healing and comfort to the one being restored. When we pursue this with other believers, when we see someone caught in a trespass, when we go to them and say, Brother, I, you're sinning. You're not following the Lord. That's not an easy conversation. That's not a, that's not a pain-free conversation. They might distance themselves from it. Who are you to judge me? And I'm your brother who I care about. Out of love, because that's what the gospel has done. I mean, out of, out of love for you, I'm, I'm coming to, to reset the bone. To restore. And it says do so in a spirit of gentleness. We're not, we're not here to just be jerks to people. We're here to, it, it will cause pain. It will be a painful process to restore someone. But we do it with gentleness as best as we can. We have a responsibility to care for and love our fellow brothers when we sin. To pray for them. To, to seek their repentance and restoration. So as we get back to 1 John here. What on earth does it mean to sin uh, that is leading to death. Now, first off, these sins not leading to death are sins committed by a believer that have been forgiven by and atoned for by the blood of Jesus. All the sins that we commit as believers do not ultimately lead to death. We have eternal life. We've been redeemed and forgiven, and although we sin, those sins are covered by the blood of Jesus. This sin that leads to death is the sin of unbelief, a willful rebellion against God and rejecting that Jesus is the Son of God and refusing to believe the gospel. Someone that has rejected Jesus as the Son of God has refused to believe the gospel and will not be saved. And we, we can't make intercession for that. I'm not saying you ought to pray for that. What we need to do instead of praying for that is to share the gospel with them. They need to hear the good news and be saved. It says here, all unrighteousness is sin. The sin of unbelief sends us to eternal death, but all other sins can be atoned for by the blood of Christ. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor those habitually drugged, nor verbal abusers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. That gives you the bad news. A lot of list in there that we see, but notice what it says here in verse 11. Such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you were washed. 
You were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Praise God that he can save from sin. We see some of these sins in this list, and some of those are kind of high-profile sins in our culture today, and we tend to turn to our eye at those people, but God can save them with the gospel. And we must be people who proclaim the good news that Jesus died, he broke his body, he shed his blood to wash us of our sin, to atone for us, to redeem us. We can be saved. And with that being said, as believers, when we commit sins, we will sin as believers. It's not like indwelling sin has been eradicated from us. We will fall from time to time. I've said before, the Christian life is like two steps forward and one step back. Sometimes we take a few steps back and we need the help of our brothers and sisters in Christ praying for us and, and coming to us and having those difficult conversations. And brother, you're not, not following the straight and narrow here. Come back. It's not an easy conversation, but because we love one another, we can't just let them go. We have to have those hard conversations to restore them in a spirit of gentleness. We have a calling to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Number four, we have a calling to pursue holiness since we have been born again. Continuing on in the text... We see here, it says, we know that no one who is born of God sins. It's better translated that no one uh, born of God, uh, the ESV says it this way and it's better. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that we're going to sin. We know that we're going to sin. We have an advocate with the Father. First uh, John 2 makes that very clear that we will sin, but we don't, that the one who has been born again, the one who has, has received this new birth by the Spirit of God, does not keep on making a habitual, willful practice of sin. We, we, we live lives of holiness. So the first thing that we see here is, is, that, is the believer's pursuit. Our pursuit is one of holiness. We don't keep on sinning. That, that we, we've, 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 we've died to sin and we've been made alive through Christ. And Romans 6 says, how shall we who, who died to sin still live in it? Well, we can't. We don't keep on sinning. We, our, our, our pursuit, our, our, the general thrust of our life is one towards godliness and holiness. And even when we do sin, praise God, we have an advocate with the Father, as 1 John 2 tells us about. But our general pursuit is one of holiness and a holy life pleasing to God. We see the believer's pursuit. We don't keep on sinning. We pursue holiness. But we see, number two, the, the believer's preservation. It says here, we know that no one who is born of God keeps on sinning. That's referring to the believer. But he, notice what it says here, but he who is born of God keeps him. This is referring to the fact that Jesus also was born of God. He was born of the Spirit. Uh, and he keeps us. He preserves us. Jesus tells us in John 6 that all the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me and I will raise him up on the last day. He promise, promises to, to preserve us until the end. Our security and, and salvation, our, our security and our, our eternal hope 
rests not in our feeble attempts at obedience, but Christ's omnipotent grip on us in the gospel. He will not let go of those who are his. Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. We persevere in holiness. We persevere in the Christian life. We, we continue on in faithfulness ultimately because Jesus preserves us by his power and by his grace. The third thing that we see here is the believer's protection. It says here that, that he who is born of God keeps him and the evil one does not touch him. And verse 19 explains this further. It says, we know that we are of God. And that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now, there are two different groups here. First, you have the people who are of God on one hand. And then uh, second, you have the people who are under the power of the evil one. The one group are, are of God and the evil one cannot touch him. The other group are under the power of the evil one. And when we see here the, the whole world is under the power of the evil one, it's, it's obviously referring to the whole world with the exception of believers. Everyone who, who doesn't know Christ. The one group is kept by God's power and the other is led astray and under the power of the evil one. This means that the entire unbelieving world is under the power and sway of Satan and his minions. We read in Ephesians 6 of the spiritual warfare that is going on. In Ephesians 2, we read that we're, 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 we're following the prince and paladins of the air prior to placing our faith in Christ by being made alive. The entire unbelieving world is under power of the evil one, but the one who is trusting in Jesus is protected. The evil one cannot touch him. The evil one to whom everyone outside of Christ is under his sway and influence, that one cannot touch the one who is being preserved and kept by Jesus. You are protected. No one, the evil one, does not touch him. I think of the story of Job. Well, you know, maybe you're, you're, you've gone back to that one. The evil one certainly did, did tempt Job, right? Well, I want you to see here that when, when Satan, you had that interaction between the devil and God there in Job in the Old Testament. And the devil said, well, you know, hey, but how about I, I want to test somebody. And God said, well, how about my servant Job? Actually, God's the one who, who, who threw Job out there. I'm sure Job's saying, well, thanks, God. God for mentioning my name for all that you're about to do. But God, but, but Satan could not do anything that God would not allow. Satan's hands were tied. The evil one cannot touch us. We are kept, preserved by Christ. We are protected by God. That is the hope that we have in Christ. So as we pursue holiness, we need to Praise God that we are preserved and protected by Him. Number five, we see that we have been united to Christ, and our union to Christ is the basis of our eternal life. We continue on in the text here in verse 20. It says, And we know that the Son of God has come. 
The Son of God has come, and He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. It says that we know that the Son of God has come. Now, I would love for you to go back and underline every time in 1 John that the word know is used. We can know that we have eternal life. We, we know that He's come. We, we know that we have our prayers answered. John wants us to have certainty of our hope in Christ. We know that he's come and he's given us understanding so that for the purpose of that we may know him who is true. Now, dear believers, we can complicate Christianity. And and, and as we dive into his word, we ought to understand the word in greater ways, turning over every theological rock to grow in our, our knowledge of Christ and of God. But. But Christianity, in its simplest form, is this. Do you know Him? Do you know Him who is true? Do you know Christ? Jesus came to give us understanding so that we may know Him. So, dear friends, if you don't know Christ in a saving way, do not delay. Enter into a saving relationship with Him through His shed blood on the cross. Do you know Him? Gave us understanding so that we may know him. And it says here, and we are in him who is true. We are in Christ. If we know him, we are in him. We are united to him. And in his son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Our union to Christ is our basis of eternal life. When we adopted our daughter back in 2019, she became united to us. She became a member of our family. So if we take a family trip to go get ice cream, she gets to come. If we take a family trip to Disney World, she gets to go. Now, she doesn't get to go because she's somehow superior to other children or or better than anybody else. Uh, she's, she's, not, she's not somehow excelling more than others. We're, we're not holding tryouts to see which kid gets to go with us. She gets to go because she's been united to us. She's ours. In similar fashion, when we enter into a relationship with Christ through repentance and faith, we are united to Christ. We're adopted into his family. We, we don't lay hold of eternal life because we're somehow superior to others that are outside of Christ or because we're somehow smarter, we're somehow better fit for the kingdom. No, we, we lay hold of eternal life because we've been united to Jesus. Galatians 4, 4-7 through 7 tells us that God sent Jesus to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive his adoption as sons. And if we're sons, we become heirs through God. We become co-heirs with Christ on the basis of knowing him and being united with him. Dear friends, do you know Christ? Are you united with him by faith? If not, please come to him and do not delay Come have your sins atoned for by the blood he poured out and as he died the death that you deserve. When we die and we come before those gates on judgment day. They ask, why should I let you in? If our answer is anything but I'm united with Christ. 
if our answer is anything, but I am united to him. I, he belongs to me and I belong to him. And why should I? Well, because I went to church. No, that's not going to get you in. Why should I let you in? Well, I was a preacher. No, that's not going to let you in either. I'm united to Christ. I belong to him and he belongs to me and he, he claims me. Do you know Christ and are you united to him? And as we come to the last verse, and as this book is intended to give us confident assurance of our salvation, to know without a shadow of a doubt that we have eternal life, to, to not go through life doubting, wondering if we've done enough because it's not what we do, it's what Christ has done. Number six tells us we ought, ought to heed a final warning and guard ourselves from idolatry. This has been a letter to true believers, and, and we see, even in this last verse, we've seen this repeated over and over again, where, where John refers to believers as little children. This fatherly disposition he has towards these believers, he cares about them, he loves them. Almost like a, a grandfather having his grandson come up and sit on his lap, little children. He gives them a warning. Guard yourselves from idols. Uh, John Calvin states that the heart is a factory of idols. We have to guard ourselves because even, even good things in our lives can be elevated to becoming God things in our lives. The good things in our lives can be misused and become idols. And idols are lurking everywhere, which is why we must be on guard. He is telling us that even though we can have confident assurance that we are in Christ... We must not grow lazy in our pursuit of Christ and always be on guard against the idols that pop up in our hearts and lives that take our focus off of Jesus. Now, as my family and I prepare to move out west, many of the church folks out there have overwhelmingly told us to watch out for rattlesnakes. Now, we're excited about the upcoming opportunity, but I'm going to tell you that's not something I'm looking forward to. And they blend in and, and, and they could be somewhere where you're just walking and not realize it. And our idols are much like that. An idol can be anything that originates out of our hearts and anything that begins to take first place over the Lord Jesus. We might not even realize it's becoming an idol. We might not even realize it's popping up, but it's there. They're lurking around seeking to take our eyes off of Christ. An idol can be a relationship or money or a job or prominence or anything that we think will give us what we most need. To be happy, to be successful, to, to whatever it is that we're looking for. As believers, have confident assurance that you're in Christ and that you're saved. That you know that you have eternal life, but even so, guard yourself from idols. Be vigilant. Looking at those things that can pop up. And take your eyes off of Jesus. As we close. 1 John is written to give us this confidence. This assurance of eternal life. And he does so through these various tests. These tests in around belief. That Jesus is the son of God. Of obedience and holiness. Are you walking in the light as he is in the light. And in love are you loving the brothers. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Are you living in obedience to His Word and pursuing holiness? Are you loving one another within the local church? 
These three tests are fleshed out throughout 1 John. If we, if we look at our life and we see those things present, then we know that God has been at work in us. That He's redeemed us by grace and we can have confident hope that we have eternal life. But may we ever be vigilant against the idols that pop up in our hearts. And may we ever and always seek to worship Christ supremely. Let's pray.